she stated that she believed she would never forget the rain from the night before. She believed that she would always remember that as she topped the horizon upon the train to work, the skyline that she saw before her. It was an average day. She made it in just as she always did right on time at 8 a.m. sharp. She made her way into her cubicle, turned on her computer, and went down the hall to get a bite of breakfast and a cup of coffee. She began a conversation with someone who she had rarely met, but she found out that day she would have a great friendship with, perhaps even for the rest of her life. She finally made her way back toward her office, had just made herself to sit down at her computer once again when she heard an explosion. The explosion rocked the building. She wasn't really sure what it was, but nevertheless did not panic. She sat there for a few more moments until someone noticed that just outside of her window, papers were falling in every direction. She remembers someone jokingly said that perhaps today was the day of the ticker tape parade. She would shortly find out that was absolutely not true. Around 10 to 12 minutes, she thought, passed by. And yet another explosion seemingly rocked her building. By this time, someone had turned on the news via the Internet. And CNN was now reporting that not one, but two planes had hit the buildings right next door to hers. She remembers the smoke. She said she'll never forget the blood-curdling screams that came even from her own building. When somewhere between 55 and 100 minutes later, in only 12 seconds, the building next to hers fell to the ground. She said out of all of the things that she thought that she would remember, none of them had topped the list yet. She made her way into a bathroom where they instructed all in her office to go. She saw people weeping. Even she herself was among those who were beginning to shake furiously and uncontrollably. And there she saw her newfound friend grasping within her hand a cell phone on which she had found a text. It was from this lady's husband. And all he had to say was goodbye. This was the greatest day that really fell among the worst. She's not sure she'll ever forget it. Neither is she sure she'll ever want to. You know what that day was. It was ten years ago today. She said that she can remember at some point asking questions such as what's going on. They had no idea to begin with. 
But after she realized just what had happened, and she said it was some six to eight hours later, really began to try to wrap her mind around the events of that morning, she then moved from what to the question, why? Why would such an event take place? Friends, you could categorize the events of 9-11 into several categories, but I'm afraid if you boil them all down and you come to the truth, you find out that this fate-filled day existed in time because of religious persecution. It existed in time because some group of people, some group of individuals, claiming in their own minds to follow some other God beside the one we know of heaven, set out to destroy a nation that they saw as being a Christian nation. Sometimes I wonder how correct, or that is incorrect, they might have been. The word Christian within itself implies that someone is a follower, an active follower of Jesus Christ. You know as well as I do from studying your Bibles that even those who claim to be among the religious world are not always true and faithful Christians. But yet on that day, as one would suffer, so would all. How do we stand beneath such events as that? More so than that, how do we stand in our own lives as we live them daily? And we likewise suffer religious persecutions. And even more than that, how can we in our text tonight, as we'll see in just a moment from Matthew chapter 5, find the prize of persecution? Read with me that text if you can get that. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 10. Of course, you'll realize these are the words of Jesus. They're coming in the beginning portions of what we would entitle today as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus spoke these words, verse 10. Blessed are they which persecute you for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Some translations say the kingdom of God, one and the same. He goes on in verse 11 as it's listed and says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. And he adds in verse 12, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Did you see it? Jesus Christ, out of His own two lips, spake unto all of mankind for all eternity and proclaimed upon us that we could be blessed in the midst of persecution. That word blessed that you find in your King James translation that is oftentimes interpreted as the word happy, you know it stands for more than that. As a matter of fact, the Greek word makurios was often a reflection, at least a description given to an island that was there in the Mediterranean Sea around the time of Christ. 
It was given to that island simply for the cause that these people on this island had come to know that they had been blessed, if you want to say it in our language. They had received Mercurius that is a completeness in their survival and their ability to survive. They found that to be the case because out of all the islands and all the lands that were round about there, they were the one who really in some terms had no need for either import or export. They were self-sufficient in amongst themselves. And Jesus says, in the midst of persecutions, we're blessed. We are sufficient, but not in amongst ourselves. He adds to that for clarity the next phrase, rejoice with exceeding glad. Blessed is added to the idea of one who rejoices and one who is found to be exceeding glad. Friends, that's the idea of total elation. You say, well, that might be the case. In the midst of some things in our life, there may be a new marriage. There may be a newfound love. There may be a birth. There may be this and that. But Jesus said it would be the case in the monks of persecutions. How is that? I want to draw with you three ideas from this text. We'll really take them from mainly verses 11 and 12, but we'll carry it into verse 13. The first one has to do, and we're trying to understand how it is the case, or how it is possible at least, that persecutions can become our prize. The first one that we'll discuss is what I'm calling the reasons for persecution. You see, when you wrap all of this up, when you narrow it down to what Jesus is saying here, you have to realize that the persecutions of which He speaks in this text are not general persecutions. They're not persecutions, as we'll develop it later, that occur in every man's life and for every man's reason. They're not that. They're laying only upon His children. Notice with me the words of verse 10 more carefully. He says to begin with, blessed are they which persecute you. Watch the next few words. For righteousness sake. He goes on and connects with that. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, he says again, blessed ye are when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Now what are the reasons for persecution listed within this text? Well, number one, it comes because of the life that we live. If you remember anything, remember that we are persecuted today, whether it be as individuals or as a religious group known as the Church of Christ, Christ's body, or whether it be as a nation for being called or at least accused of being Christian in nature. We're persecuted for the life that we live. I'm certain you're familiar with 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, which speaks of how we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, but he also adds to that a peculiar you know the life that you and I live as Christians, and I emphasize as faithful Christians even, that makes us different from the whole of the world. You can go up the street and back down the other side, and you can intercede with other religious groups, if you will, other faiths to use their terms, and you can find individuals that live up to certain moral standards, that live up to certain degrees of what Jesus taught, but you will not find this type of persecution placed upon those people. You won't find it. It's for the life that we show. Henry had just left the house. He was headed for the grocery store when his wife called him on his cell phone. She just said very plainly and very clearly, she said, Henry, I'm afraid for your life. You need to be careful when you're on the highway. 
Of course, he turned and asked why that would be. She simply said, I've just turned on the news. There's a crazy man on the highway, the one that you're on. He's going the wrong way. Henry said, you've got to be kidding. I'll tell you what, where I am, everybody's going the wrong way. Now that just simply illustrates the fact that there are those who consider themselves in their minds to be religious, who consider themselves to be followers of Jesus Christ, and they look around them and they say, well, the whole world's going the wrong way. And it just might be them. It might be them within themselves. Especially when they focus on the Lord's church. People look into the Lord's body all the time and they see the things that we do. They see the things that we say. They see the things that we practice, that we preach, if you will. And they say, well, that's got to be all wrong. Friends, everybody's going the wrong way. We've got to check ourselves. Because Jesus here said, Blessed are ye only, He says only, persecuted for righteousness' sake. That in turn tells us when we are doing right. Now is that always going to be the case? Certainly it is. I want you to turn with me. We'll turn several times, more than Jim usually turns. But I want you to turn over to the book of First Peter with me. We're going to read an account or an instance where through inspiration at least, God comes down and allows Peter to pen these words. He's speaking of the same thing Jesus speaks of. 1 Peter chapter 4 beginning in verse 14, notice these words. If ye be reproached. Now that's not exactly the same word as found in our text or vile, but it's the same idea. And when you be reproached for the name of Christ, happier ye, same thought, same process, happier ye, but watch what he says. For the Spirit of God and of the God resteth upon you, and the part of His evil spoken of, but your part He is glorified. But, verse 15, the contrast, He says, And but let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Now, right in between the suffering for Christ's sake, verse 14, and the suffering that takes place as a Christian, verse 16, he mentioned people who likewise suffered, didn't he? He mentioned, for example, the murderer who suffered. Well, you say a murderer ought to suffer. Amen to that. You kill someone, your blood ought to be shed or whatever it is. You at least ought to be punished. You ought to spend your life in prison. We go on and on talking about that. You look a little bit farther on this, you say, well, there it is, that's a thief. I've been uh, stolen from before. I've had robbers come into my home and plunder my things. And I tell you what, they all pay the price. Amen to that. But then he comes down and says, an evildoer? You say, well, that's right. I, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of evil people either. Do you know anything that is against Christ is evil in the sight of God? Anything that goes against Christ and His teaching in turn is evil in the sight of God. He gives one example there and behind that. Now this could categorize itself as an evildoer, although separately. He even speaks of those who are busybodies. He explains what that word means when he says that those who are busybodies are dealing in other men's matters. We say, well, I, I'm not necessarily found guilty in that. Well, I'm just illustrating this. When you are an evildoer, you do something that goes against what Christ would do, even though you think it to be morally right, even though you think it to be acceptable in men's eyes, and especially if you're, for example, here, a busybody, you might find yourself at the end of somebody's fist. 
And you might stand back and say, there it is, persecution. I tried to do what was right. I tried to do what God would have me to do. I tried to correct them for their sin. And you call persecution. But if it's not for righteousness sake, it's not really persecution in this context. It's not. We can take our Bibles proverbially and we can go around the nation and the neighborhood and we can beat people over the head with it and we can try to cause them to be corrected by our standards, really putting away Christ's standards, maybe taking our standards somehow and lifting them above Christ as the Pharisees would have done. And the Pharisees met with much conflict and the Pharisees were in turn persecuted but became the persecutee if that's even... It came back toward them, but it wasn't for righteousness sake. It comes because of the life that we show. But not only that, go back to the text. He mentions there in the latter part of that, we've already read across it several times, he says, and they say all manner of evil against you falsely. Now that's not the life that we show, friends. That is what I'm calling here the lies that we suffer. There are certain things that are put upon us as members of the Lord's church that are oftentimes not true. There are many things that are said against us, and we know some of them are familiar with. They say, well, oh, that, that's one of those church of Christers. That's one that's used. That's one of those water baptism folks. That's another that's used. That's one of those do-gooders. That's one of those five-steppers. And all these things, what are they doing? They're saying things about us. They're saying things about us that are not true in that case. And oftentimes that narrows its focus down from the whole of the church to an individual. I'm pretty certain you in your Christian life, your Christian walk, you've gone about at times and you've been doing what was right. You've been doing exactly what you believe to be right nonetheless. Someone turns around and points a finger of accusation against you. Someone stands up. They try to discredit, if you will, your good name. They try to put you away. They're speaking evil against you. And if that is the case, that you're doing the right and they're telling the wrong, guess what? They're speaking evil against you falsely. Here's the check. The key words falsely. I don't know what you may have underlined in your Bibles, but I have highlighted, circled, and underlined falsely. I've done things sometimes in the name of God. On His behalf, so I thought in the beginning. Done in a certain way, followed a certain pattern, followed through with it, and stood my ground. And then had people come to me and say, oh no, that was all wrong. You shouldn't have ever handled it that way. You shouldn't have never dealt with it that way. If you'd have done it this way, it would have been done better. And I've stood back and said, well, you know what that is, see? That's persecution. That's all that that is. And then lo and behold, I opened my Bible one day, and I'm wrong. You ever been wrong? And I'm wrong. You see, when they speak evil against you, it cannot be this type of persecution save it be false. Save it be false. Now to reflect on a word that Peter used that we didn't describe very much, he used the word reproach. He carried out the word reproach. Now the word reproach has the idea of something that is being laid against you and held to you. Now here's the thing. Can I check my life or can those statements be checked in my life and can they be found as false? I can only speak for me oftentimes or sometimes at least they're found as being true. 
I've got my proverbial spiritual dukes up in the name of Jude verse 3. And I'm ready to contend for the faith. And then when I sit back and I draw those lines where God draws those lines, I have exceeded them, gone beyond them, whatever the case may be. I'm not being persecuted after this manner. There's no prize in that kind of persecution. So how does it occur? Well, it can be the life that we show. It can be the lies that we suffer. Thirdly, it will always be this if it's for the Lord. It's for the Lord that we serve. Now that's the one that really matters. Our lives that we show is on the behalf of God, on behalf of serving the Lord. The lies that we suffer are on His behalf. But when we think about the Lord that we serve, that's what we do toward Him, not for Him. Yes, God requires our service. Yes, God desires our service. But God's never forced anyone to serve Him. That's the beauty of Christianity. That's the beauty behind all the times when Paul and the other apostles, as they would write the books such as we're going through here, as they would write that I'm a slave, a servant, a doulos of God. I volunteered for this position. It's for the Lord that we serve. Let me ask you a few questions. You can answer these in your mind. Number one, does the world hate Jesus? You're not sure yet. Let's narrow the focus. Does the world hate the baby Jesus? No. No, they make billions upon billions upon perhaps trillions of dollars each and every year around Christmas time as they try to celebrate and commemorate what they consider to be a day of honoring the birth of our Lord. It's not either that anyway, but that's what they call it. That's what they do with it. Every purchase that is made in a store of those nativity scenes or whatever it might be that is directed toward that idea is supposed to be a reminder of how much the world loves Jesus. The world loves Jesus. So Jesus, therefore, is loved when He's helpless. When He's just that little infant. When He's that newborn babe laying in a manger, they love Him. Who, who wouldn't love a baby? He's something else. He's also and likewise loved when He's the healer. The world doesn't hate that Jesus. Why? The Jesus who would come in, who would commend upon those who were lame to walk, those who were blind to see, those who were even dead to live again. The world doesn't hate that Jesus. They love that Jesus. The Jesus who would feed the 5,000 and the 4,000 and the 7,000 and any other that may or may not be recorded in the New Testament, they love that Jesus. You say, how can you be sure, preacher? I can be sure because there are hospitals that supposedly do their work in the name of Jesus. There are people who go out and they serve meals to the hungry, to the downtrodden, to the poor. They clothe those who are in need all in the name of Jesus. They love Jesus. In many of those cases, they do that out of the bottom of their heart, if you want to say it that way. Asking really nothing in return. They love Jesus when He's a helper. They love Him when He's a healer. Friends, the world hates Jesus. They loathe Jesus when He's the herald. When He's standing before the multitudes and He calls murder a sin. When He calls adultery and fornication 
and drunkenness and lasciviousness. All sin. When He speaks against alcohol and tobacco use and, and all these things, when He calls that a sin, the world, the world hates that Jesus. When Jesus takes a stand against the Pharisees and the Sadducees, even for the thoughts and intents of their hearts, when He looks into their hearts and He sees that their attitudes are not even right, and He turns that upside down and tells us, even as people who serve Him, oh, you don't have to take a knife and put it through the heart of someone to be guilty of murder. You don't have to lie with a woman to be guilty of adultery. The world hates that Jesus. The Jesus who calls and says, well, there's only one acceptable out, if you will, to use that term loosely. There's one acceptable out when you have a marriage that has been joined together and that's for the cause of fornication. Oh, the world down at the courthouse and in the lawyer's office, they hate that Jesus. They want out of those situations. They don't care what Jesus says. Those are reasons for persecution. Look at what Jesus said Himself. Turn with me now to the book of John. John chapter 15. You'll be familiar with this text beginning in verse 19. Jesus says, if. Now I want to say to you, oftentimes as Chris implemented this morning, the word if can mean conditionally, if. But it can also mean since. Here it means if. Notice what He says, if. You were of the world, the world would love his own. Why does the world, why do the world hate Christians? Why do they take time to persecute a Christian? Because they're not of the world. Cliff's been an entire series recently looking at 1 Peter 4 and verse 4, wherein they think it's strange when we run not with the excess of right, speaking evil of you. That's in the same kind of an idea, same mindset. We're persecuted because why? We're just not in the world. But watch what he says. He says, but because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hated. We tell our children, oh, that's a strong word. Don't, don't, don't say you hate anybody. The world hates us. Not only do they hate us, the King James translators chose to add that ending there, which reminds us of the Greek tenses, which implies they continued on and on to hate us. He says, the world hateth you. Tie that to verse 20. And remember the word which I said unto you, the servant Lord. For if any had persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they have kept my sayings, they will not keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they knew not him that sent me. Did you see a phrase there at the very end? that seems to tie to our text very strongly. He said it's for my name's sake. That's why. We are persecuted for His name's sake. So it's not, it's not the life that we live all the time. It's not always the lies that we suffer, although we are sometimes lied against. But it will always be the Lord that we serve if we live faithfully. If we choose not to live faithfully, we may be going in the wrong direction and we may feel persecuted, but it won't be of God. It will not be for righteousness' sake. Now, not only that, to add with this idea, carrying a little bit farther, not only the reasons for persecution, but back in our text, notice with me what we're going to call now the results of persecution. 
We've already read across them several times. They're developed back up in verse 11. The very first one you come across, just to expand the word a little bit, he says, Blessed are you when men shall revile you. That word revile, it carries with the idea of someone who would speak against you, who would gnash their teeth on you, or press against you. You remember occasions when the Bible spoke of Stephen, how that they wanted to gnash their teeth on him? The disciples, they wanted therefore to gnash their teeth. They wanted them. They wanted them for everything that they were worth. They wanted to destroy them for everything they're worth. So what's going to happen here? Well, there'll be personal insults, basically. It's just like the phraseology from verse 10 that these people will be spoken evil against falsely. These same people are those who the Bible says here will revile you. It will be a personal insult, but they'll not only be that, they'll in turn be physical intimidation. Not only personal insults, but physical intimidation. Go with me over the book of Hebrews. I will go ahead and give the disclaimer. Chris and I were talking about this the other day in light of this morning sermon that he preached, just going over some ideas. And he pointed out some things to me I had not noticed. I'm not going to try to point all of those out, but I will point out a few. Notice we're beginning Hebrews 11 and verse 33. Hebrews 11 and verse 33. Notice this. He says, And who through faith subdued kingdoms, who wrought righteousness, obtained promises, and stopped the mouths of lions. You say, well, more power to them. Notice what he says. And quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others, now that's the key here, and others, I've got a line drawn in my Bible right there, and others, he said, were tortured, not accepting deliverance, but that it might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, and yea, more over bonds and imprisonments. And they were stoned. There's one, verse 37. That's physical intimidation. You call upon the name of the Lord, you're going to die. You stand against the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. They were sawn asunder. They were tempted. They were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destituted, afflicted, and tormented. Why? They did it because they were trying to persecute them. That's all these were. All of these categorized themselves into persecutions. Now, just to name two of them, you notice one there, he says, and they were sawn asunder. You ever pictured that in your mind? Maybe you really understand what this is. Sawing asunder, that's, that's Houdini or whoever the magician would have been in the past. He puts a, a young lady in a box and he's got a saw. And I don't know how this works, but somehow he, he draws the saw back and forth. He cuts it right in two, supposedly. We say, well, we know that's a fake. This was no fake. Most literally, when they were sawing asunder, however, they weren't sawing asunder here. They were sawing asunder from the bottom up. What's that imply? Friends, you don't get to the vile organs until you've cut a long way. That's torture. That's persecution. The idea, you move a little bit farther, and they were in sheep skins and goat skins being destitute. You say, well, they, they, had to, they had to put on whatever clothing they could find. You know, back in those days, times were tough. No. They would oftentimes take individuals whom they desired to persecute and put them inside of fresh sheepskins or fresh goatskins and bind them up tightly 
and basically set them out in the fields to labor because they knew at some point, very quickly by the way, those sheep and goat skins would begin to contract and dry and it would literally change the life out of those individuals and they could not. You say, that's never happened to me. Oh, God of heaven, I pray it doesn't. But as a way of persecution. There will be insults. They're laying against us personally, insults. There will in turn be this idea of this physical intimidation. But I want to tell you something else about this, and we'll go to the Scriptures to develop this one. There will likewise be public injustice. Who basically claims today, and I'm going on the word claim, and I'm using the word claim very strongly so we do not miss it. Who claims to be in charge of whether or not you and I live or die in America today? Well, you would say to begin with, well, the government claims that. They claim that if they do this just right or do that just right, that they'll lives, they'll make it more possible for us to live and they'll increase all of this technology and therefore they'll increase our lifespans and we'll just live happy, wide and handsome right here in the life that we live in. But what often happens? Put this one in your margin and then turn there. Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13 and verse 9. We're under the heading of public injustice. We'll look back and ask the Scriptures what happens in the name of persecution. Mark chapter 13 and verse 9 says, But take heed, therefore they shall deliver you up. Watch the next few words. They shall deliver you up to councils and in the synagogues. So shall you be beaten. We don't live in a society, at least in... I run it in Alabama where we can walk down to the local synagogue. But in Jesus' day, they did. In Jesus' day, there were many who were still worshiping on the heading of the old law and they were still practicing their religion toward God in the synagogues and they had decided that their way, which basically sometimes is with the scribes and Pharisees, exceeded God's way, that their way was the only way and yea, even the better way of doing things. And if you were outside of that, and by the way, if you are outside of that, it was basically because you're following Christ, you're now different from them, they would call you into their own synagogues and beat you right there. What kind of persecution is that? Religious persecution. There are literal terms here in the text, but if we want to bring that into the 21st century and on, we can say that that comes as religious persecutions. Are we ever persecuted religiously or in the name of religion? Yes. Oftentimes we are. The denominational world that has basically taken itself and created something out of nothing, that has created a church or a subheading of churches, that they claim to be a bunch of vines and branches and going to heaven any way you want to go, those people oftentimes persecute the faithful. Again, we're tying this back to those who are righteous. For Jesus' name's sake, there'll be persecution. There'll be times when we try to live our lives as Christians when people in the name of supposed religion will tell us what we can and can't do and will even attempt to punish us for doing what the will of God is. That's what happened here. 
by everyone's standards, you would automatically make the assumption if it's those who are the councils in the synagogues, these are good holy folk, these are good people, these are religious people, and they would never do anything. It says right there. And you shall be beaten. Then notice what else he says. And you shall be brought before the rulers and kings. That's not religious persecution. That's governmental persecution. Do you realize in America today, to some extent, I'm not making this as full as it can be, I don't know the laws. But in America today, what I said earlier, when I pointed the finger and said earlier that what happened on 9-11 was basically because one group who called themselves religious believed one way and followed one God and they pointed the finger of persecution back at faithful Christians and I implied in that that faithful Christians are right and they are wrong. You know that could actually be found in it. It's beginning to get that way. That's an illegal statement. It's not politically correct. It's illegal to say. If I said that the Islamic nation and the Muslim nation, whatever you want to call it, I don't know which one you categorize this, I think more Islamic. If I said that the Islamic faith was set to persecute Christians and they were set to put us to death in some standards, in some places, I'd be put down for saying that. You remember ten years ago, when this event we began with happened, how that all these men and women came out of those buildings, and I don't remember if it was Congress or the Senate or whoever, the government officials got together and they have a time of prayer. You remember that? And people were were outpouring back into the churches using it loosely and they wanted to come back to God because their eyes had been opened and we need God in times like these and presidents and vice presidents and all these people were referencing God. Do you know that on today... On today at that site, the government said there will be no prayer at that site. Some religious group donated their place of worship several blocks away and said, if you want to pray, come on down here. They would not allow it on the site. That's government. But if that's not bad enough, the religious world will stand against us oftentimes. The government will stand against us. Keep reading, but drop down for time's sake into verse 12. And now, same context, and now the brother shall betray brother, and the death and the father and the son and the children shall rise up against their parents and shall cause them to be put to death. For what? For living for God. Are you the child of a parent who when you obeyed the gospel, and I'm not trying to put too much in this, that's your family matter, but are you a child of a parent when you obeyed the gospel that they had something to say about it? They weren't exactly uh, happy for you. Uh, they weren't tickled that you had left your faith, that you had been taught from a child or, or whatever. They weren't exactly excited. It's right here. It's right here. You ever tried to teach? Maybe you came to know the true Lord later in your life and you go back and try to teach a loved one, a family member, a child even. And you try to say, look, I know I raised you this way and to believe that, but that's all wrong. And here's what the Bible says. And they stand against you. And they cut you off. Won't even speak anymore. Won't have anything to do with you. That's right here. Why? For righteousness sake. 
So we have this. We have the reasons for persecution. Sometimes, often, it's the life that we live. Sometimes it categorizes itself into the lies that we suffer, but all the while it's only because of the Lord that we serve. We in turn have the idea here, the results of persecution, how they come to fruition, if you will, how they come to be in our lives. They come through the way of these insults, intimidation, public injustice, all those things come upon us. But what do we do? You say, well, you've been talking for nearly 45 minutes about the prize of persecution and you hadn't said a thing about the prize yet. It's here. Read all the text together again. Blessed, complete, happy, full. Blessed are you, Jesus says, are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake and rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets. What are we going to do in the light of persecutions? Where will we find the prize in persecution? I'll give you three simple things. I hope you can remember. Number one, reign in life. Verse 10 said we are blessed. We're blessed. It is actually a privilege to suffer on the Lord's behalf. That's the way others saw it. You read the accounts of Peter and John as found in Acts chapters 3, 4, and 5. They seemingly, the cold context would prove it, they believed that they were blessed to suffer for His sake. Bears it out in many of Paul's letters. He was able to take persecution, the same types of persecutions that could come our way, that are still possible for us today, and more and more becoming likely for us today. He was able to stand in that and to reign in life. I heard a young man illustrate this one day. He told of a, a big old bulldog. I don't know exactly what kind, there's so many, but a big old bulldog. He saw this bulldog running down the street in front of his house. He noticed right behind that bulldog was a little old bitty feist dog about a tenth of that bulldog's size. And he was just nipping at his heels and yapping and yapping and trying to get at him. And he said he noticed the bulldog never checked up. The bulldog never looked back. He just kept walking. As if that little dog was not even behind him. Wasn't even worried about it. I'm telling you what he said. He said, I thought about that for quite a while. And I was dealing with some problems even among the local church at that point. And he said, I bowed my head in prayer and I prayed to God that I could have whatever that bulldog had. That I could stand up even in the midst of persecution. And, and, and it not bothered me. Not even phased me. We can reign in life second to that. You're looking back through this text, you see that we ought to rejoice in the Lord. That's verse 12. He says to rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. Now how in the world can we rejoice? Jesus reveals that. He actually reveals that to us of how we can deal with this. Fast forward in your Bibles. In mind you just jump to the next page. But notice what Jesus says beginning in verse 43. We're in Matthew chapter 5, but now we're reading verse 43. And ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, watch this now, Love your enemies, 
and bless them that curse you, and do good to them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you, and persecute you. You say, well, wait a minute. He's talking about people who speak against us, who curse us, who despitefully use us, who persecute all these things. There's, there's no way I can find joy in that. There is. You see, those are terms that are used of the accuser, not the one who's being accused. Our words are love, bless, do good, pray. Are you happy when you love somebody? Yeah. Are you happy when you go out and you do something good, even if you were a little apprehensive about it to begin with, but you get back home and it's the end of the day and you say, you know what, that, that wasn't bad. It wasn't nearly bad as I thought. Are you happy when you're able to sit down and with all manner of sincerity do something good for someone else or even to pray for someone else? It's hard. It's hard to, to, to get anything out of that but rejoicing. But to be glad. Wait a minute. So long as it's for righteousness sake and not for my own benefit. Now, there are three ways that are bearing out in this, even in addition to that. Because the Bible says here very plainly and very clearly, it comes because of the company we resemble. Notice what happened. He said, for so, I'm back up in verse 12, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. How can we in turn rejoice in the Lord? We rejoice because we can stand back and say, well, I'm being treated this way and it's not all that great, you might say. But I'm no better than the prophets. No different. Who are the prophets? Oh, we love the prophets. We, we uphold the prophets. We uphold the faithful. Hebrews chapter 11. We uphold all those people. We understand those people we believe. We want to be like those people. We can be like them. If we suffer the same persecution for righteousness sake. But it's not only the company we resemble you go a little bit farther than that, it's the character we reveal. How do we stand? Do we get frustrated? Do we throw up our hands? Do we give up? Do we shut up? When people begin to stand against us, speak against us, how do we move forward? It's what we do. And then you see the last one here, it's the compensation that we receive. He said, for great is your reward in heaven. So what do we do? We reign in life. You mean, you mean in spite of persecution? I mean in the midst of persecution. We in turn, we rejoice in the Lord. Can't rejoice in any other thing. We rejoice in the Lord. And number three, we release love. That's back over to verse 44 across the page again. Because he's speaking there, says, and I say unto you to love your enemies. You mean those who speak against me? You mean those who, who would persecute me? You mean those who revile me, who despitefully use me? You mean those people? Yes, love them. Now, are we to take the things of 9-11 and we think back and say, well, this person's the one who was behind it, he masterminded, and this person did this, and I tell you what, I just love them with the bottom of my heart. We may not. but I believe the text may reveal Jesus would have. He might have been sad for their souls. He would have been. 
What is the prize of persecution? I'll sum it up in one line. The prize of persecution is the opportunity to be persecuted. Going back through all of this, if I'm persecuted for anything other than righteousness' sake, there is no prize. But the prize is in the persecution itself. If you like to bow your head tonight and pillow your head and pray to God and pray that you would be persecuted, you say, great is your reward in heaven. If you like to pray to God for trials and troubles, great is your reward by the way of these persecutions. If we only stand for Jesus' sake. You're here tonight and you're not a child of God's. There's nothing in this for you, unfortunately. At this point, whatever you do, however you're turned away, however you're put down, however you're stood against, however you're persecuted, will not be for righteousness' sake. It will not be for the sake of our Lord. How is that? Two words come to mind. One of them is collusion. You could be in collusion with the devil. Be going the same way. And you could meet with good old-fashioned Christians who you feel like are persecuting you. Would it be for righteousness' sake? Not on your behalf, but it would on theirs. You could be in collision with the Lord. Not living your life for Him, you are against Him. Matthew 12 and verse 30. You've got to walk with Him. You're here tonight and you're not a child of God. Through faith, repentance, confession, through baptism, you can put on Christ. You can have your sins to be remitted. And I'm proud to say, you can suffer persecution for Christ's sake. You say, I wasn't looking for that. Christ wasn't either. But He got it. Otherwise, you suffer all alone without any hope or help. You're here tonight and you're a child of God's and you may have become unfaithful. You can come home tonight and therefore from this point forward you live faithfully. If you are persecuted, it can be for the sake of our Lord and for righteousness' sake. And you can in turn reign, rejoice, and receive your reward if you're faithful. You're here tonight and you're an unfaithful child of God and you need to come. Won't you do it while together we stand as we sing?